Okay, this is the Immigrant Hustle Podcast. I am your host, B Magic. I got my brother Noise with me. And this week, we have a special guest. We've got our boy Strictly Steel. Strictly Steel. And for those of you that don't know Strick, he is a MC, singer, songwriter, photographer, and teacher. He does it all. And we talk about growing up in England with a Jamaican family and what it was like to transition from the UK to Canada. Shout out to the Birmingham Massive. We talk about how his taste in music developed by watching his dad, who was very active in the rave and jungle and grime scene out there. That, that story about him going to his first rave while being underage is just, <laughs> it's amazing, man. Uh, we also talk about the education system here in Canada and how he's had to navigate that, certain challenges he's faced as a black man in the role of an educator. That was a really unique conversation, and it, it really opened my eyes to a lot of things I didn't even think about. Yeah, we also get his take on the sex ed curriculum, which is a very hot topic debate right now in Ontario. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we also talk about just making music. We've known Strick for many, many years, so we talk about you know, making music with us, making music on his own, and we also talk about one of our homies that was behind the scenes. Yeah. From the beginning, uh, who just recently passed away, our, our homeboy Boomerang. R.I.P. to Boomerang forever. Yes, yes. So we get in depth. We talk about the music. We talk about the lifestyle. We talk about education. We go in depth with this. And we get into what he's up to now, which is photography. This is a really dope episode. I hope you enjoy episode seven with Strictly Steel. Go follow him. We'll have everything in the description. This is the Immigrant Hustle Podcast. Let's go. Hey, this is the Immigrant Hustle Podcast. I am your host, B-Magic. I got my brother, Noise, with me. And we got a very motherfucking special guest today. Yeah, Heart yeah. Lake OG. Heart Lake, you, you know? know? been there from, you know, the blood, sweat, and tears <laughs> at the very beginning. Yeah. My brother, my friend, our friend, our brother, Strictly Steel is hello, in the motherfucking hello, building. Hello. What yeah. is really good, man? Yo, I good. feel like yeah, we're yo, we need gunshots. Yeah. I feel like we need gunshots every episode. Every episode. <laughs> yo, the decor in here is amazing. <laughs> yo, only if you could see this one. You know <laughs> what? Uh, we definitely wanted to impress you with our interior <laughs> decorating skills. I'm and digging it. I'm I hope this it. is uh, up to uh, up to your high standards yo, of Brampton basement. It just reminds me of old times, man. Back in the basement, <laughs> just making, making tunes. Yo, we uh, we want to uh, thank you most definitely for. Coming through to Cumble Studios and chilling with us, you know <laughs> course, it's man. it's definitely long overdue. Uh, we you were one of the first names that I think we put down when we wanted to uh, start doing this. So uh, definitely, thank you for coming through. As always, noise. What would you like to start with? Um, yo, this is this is big, man. Because like Strick, I've known you for a while, yeah, for a number of years. But I feel like I feel like I don't know that much about you. Yeah, like as far yeah. as your story, your history. Family history. So I'm excited for today just to just to learn and just kind of get the opportunity to to find out who the man Strictly Steel <laughs> is, you know? Yeah, Strictly um, Steel, man. I remember like just sorry to get sidetracked, no, but like no, I remember okay. in high school, I'm like, who is this giraffe tall black guy, skinny <laughs> as hell, with a British accent yeah. rolling around these Heart Lake From halls? One, two, one. Yo, I was like, what is going on with this guy? But obviously, Straight you know, gate, I was like, I was like, I, I like I had a very good understanding of British culture back then. So I was so intrigued. I'm like, yeah. I got to meet this guy. 
But yeah, noise continue. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so I guess, I guess we'll start it from there, man. You are yeah. from you are from Birmingham. Originally. Yeah, Birmingham. Where exactly am? So I was born and raised in Hansworth. Hansworth. Like, no, yeah, Hansworth. So B twenty one area, um, and then I moved to Erdington. So most of my teenage life was in Erdington, which okay. is you know missed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so he's yo. from those ends too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> shout out back. to Miss. Shout yeah. out to Steel Bangles. <laughs> so who to be Um Yeah, man. Birmingham was sick growing up. It was sick. Like you just playing outside, playing football with no goalposts. Yeah. Like all that kind of stuff. Playing that door run. So the come up was nice, man, and, and just having like everyone outside at all times in the yeah. summertime. Just, what what's like your what's your ethnic background for those that may not know you? So my grandparents are from Jamaica originally, so they were born in mostly the countryside. Okay, so well, my, do you know like whereabouts in Jamaica? Yeah, yeah. So my granddad's side on my dad's side is from Chilani. Okay. So that is like proper bush, man. Like, okay. You go out there, just, Real like, yard, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. You see ghosts tra- tied <laughs> up by the tree. Okay. And then uh, my on my mom's side, they're from a place called Manchester. So okay. again, bush, you have to go up a few mountains. Nice. All that kind of stuff. But it... I went there, I've only been there once yeah. when I was 10. Okay. And it was humbling, man, because you see oh, they came from like a little little hut, basically, <laughs> to like big, big Birmingham. Yeah. And then they support the streets were paved with gold and all this kind of stuff. So, so who was like the first in your family to make that journey to England from Jamaica? The, it was like a mass movement of immigration at that time. So the 60s, the 70s. Like a lot of West Indians were moving over to to England. Yeah. It was still a British colony at the time. So my grandma, she actually traveled on a British passport. She nice. showed it me, and she's like, "Yeah, we came to England because we thought, you know, we're going back to the the motherland, all that kind of <laughs> stuff, like the Queen's land." Yeah. And then they got here, and it's like, "Yo, it was full of shit, man. It was just like dirty. It was gray. You kind of get used to the lifestyle out there. So even Most though my stuff. grandparents have have been in England for a majority of their life." They still have thick Jamaican accents, still speak patois. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, they were th- let's say they were there for for a better life, but yeah. they're still island people. Still, you island know, people and for are, those yeah. people that may not know English weather, yeah, definitely not island weather. <laughs> not at all, man. Not at all. It's a lot of rain. Yeah, it, it takes a lot to get used to that kind of climate, man. Like even going back now after being in Canada for so long, yeah. Like going back, it's like a whole different atmosphere, man. Yeah. Like it's, it does affect the way you listen to music out there. Yeah, it affects the way that you you just move around. No, it's funny yeah. because like every like I've been going to England since like age five, right? Yeah. And like pretty much, if it wasn't every year, it was every other year in my childhood when we lived in Norway. Yeah. And then now recently, obviously, a lot, it takes a little bit longer in between trips. But I remember even because my uncles own pubs in Huddersfield, right? And whenever I was in there, it would be a mix of any type of South Asians, Real heavy Jamaican influence, you know, the domino table in the back. <laughs> domino, you know, up the table. and then it was your typical British people as well, right? And yeah. everybody was coexisting, you know. Yeah. yeah, there would be little spats and this and that, you know. But it, it it was a beautiful thing to see, and that was probably some of the first diversity that I saw because obviously I was born and raised in Norway. But mm-hmm. it was just like it was cool for me to see as a young child, like that atmosphere. But what, what are your memories of, like, early Birmingham childhood for you? To be honest, like, it's funny how you talk about diversity and that. Like, in Birmingham, a lot of people are tell this. Like, I didn't really interact with 
other like races, ethnicities until I moved to Erdington, like yeah. to another school. Like in in my elementary school, um, shout out to St. Francis, man. Um, okay, bruh. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, a lot of the people there have like Caribbean descent. Everyone was Jamaican that yeah. I knew. Yeah. There was like the odd Vietnamese, the few like Kosovans that came after the war. Yeah. And then like Irish. And the Irish people were around us the whole time. So they were speaking Patu too. <laughs> so it, it, like we all kind of just melted into this one kind of monoculture at yeah. the time. And then when I went to hi- high school, that's when I was like, yo, Birmingham is different. Like there's a lot of different ethnicities here. Yeah. And it was it was mostly a white school. There was probably about 10% black kids in the school. Yeah. And we all kind of stuck together. And then it was just a weird mix, man, because you could tell that they weren't used to having people in their school. It was like traditionally white. School. Yeah, yeah. And then seeing like a whole bunch of black kids coming from like the inner city, <laughs> it was different for them. Yeah. So that was probably my first experience of seeing like white British culture apart from the television. So, but Sorry, yeah. not to cut you off, but was Birmingham different than other cities with regards to just the amount of diversity that was there? Yeah, so you have like your little pocket. So Hansworth, for example, is like a big Caribbean population, a lot of South Asians as well. So Soho Road probably rings a lot of bells with some people, yeah. right? Yeah, especially and, uh, for Punjabis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's and, in a lot of Punjabi yeah. songs talking about Soho Road. Yeah, man. So that was like a landing strip. Like you go there, you can get groceries from all over the world. You go there and get you the Caribbean like groceries. You go there, get you South Asian like bakery and all that kind of stuff there. So, you when I, that was all I was used to like being around my grandma's church friends that all spoke Patwa and mm. all spoke like as if they were still back in Jamaica, you know. And that was me coming up. It was only when I went to high school I was like, "Whoa, there's a different side of the city." Yeah. Well, that's for a lot a lot of immigrant kids, right? Mm-hmm. It is the culture that you're like seeing mainly is your own culture right like like even for me i was in i was in a place like norway but my the culture within my house is all punjabi stuff right so it's like like you're saying patwa was your thing like even for my brother i think he spoke punjabi when and he didn't really know much norwegian until he went to school Mm -hmm. and a lot of my friends that grew up here are the same way and then school is kind of where it breaks down your own culture and you start learning about other cultures and you realize there's more to this little yeah. bubble that I've, that I've been in. So you said high school is when you first encounter more diversity. Mm-hmm. How was that like? And what was it like? Like you said, it was mainly white school. Was there ever yeah. like a problem with that? Cause yeah. I know like my cousins have said racism is very evident in British culture uh, for, for many reasons. Yeah. Right. But like, what was your experience like? So the initial school that I went to, I went to two schools. The first one that I went to, it was it, it was known to be like a racist area. Yeah. So even from the jump, my dad was like, oh, why are you sending, why are you sending my son to this school to my mom, <laughs> right? Yeah. And like going there, it was like you were kind of in a bubble of, of just being around people that looked like you, sounded like you from the same kind of experience as you. Yeah. And you did feel like an outsider. And there was a few times where we got into just fights and all that stuff based just off race yeah based off like and i say this a lot to my friends like a lot of these these mentalities and ideas come from like those dinner table talks that they have right and then they come to school with the same mentality that their parents would have had and it was just from that ignorance and it would just be like all of us would just group together and just defend ourselves there would be times where we'd have to get a mini bus to like the nearest bus station because there's like the national front which is like a 
extreme group that would be anti-immigration, yeah. anti-anything that's not white. Anti- I like the white supremacists. Yeah, right? yeah, basically. Yeah, it's and pretty much their their version of the extreme right, mm-hmm. which is going yeah. on in America yeah. right now. And they will come to the school and protest while we're still like on the way out of the gates. So stuff like that we had to deal with. And, and that was the same stuff that my parents had to deal with when they went to school in a different neighborhood. So you, it was like a cycle of just same things that happen yeah over like and over again. uh hearing some of my uncle's stories it's like they literally like there would be days where they're like yo it was packy bashing day and they'd let out the south asian kids early and if like and they'd like literally the white kids would like hunt them but then like obviously once the community found this out the older heads in all the south asian communities would be waiting mm-hmm. and like if any white kids tried to mess with their kids blah 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 and it's like Obviously, that type of level of racism is not still there, but the lingering effect of those days are still there. Because like you said, the table discussion, your father is watching whatever the news is and they're talking about migrants. If they're talking shit about migrants, that's what they're going to think is the right thing because they're looking up to their father. So that's where a lot of these racist mentalities come from. But yeah, I don't want to get stuck on that because (laughs) I love England. It's It's an amazing place. I loved it though. Like, and... Like Birmingham, it is diverse. Like you, it does have its little pockets where it's like mostly Bengali, mostly Somali, mostly Jamaican. But like altogether, it was it was a sick city to be raised in, and I like everything that I know and still carry me to today. I still embody, right? It's did still, you, did you find like within Birmingham was there a unity amongst amongst different immigrants? Um, or was it like more so like let's build our community? And we're just not going to bother them. They won't bother us. It was more so like, let's build our community, I would say. Like, it's a little bit different now. Yeah, because it was still fresh. Yeah. Yeah. And it was still, they were still coming over just trying to get rid of racism within their own communities as well, right? So, like, it's mostly, like, we're just looking after ourselves, protecting each other, and then whatever happens, happens. But now I feel as if with the new generation, the barriers are kind of dropping a bit more. And there's more diversity, a little bit more people are collaborating with each other and things like that. More yeah. stuff. Yeah, but growing up, it was sick. Um, and my grandparents, when they moved, they would tell me all the stories about how when they first came to, to England and how their expectations didn't match up with what they were told. <laughs> that, that, I feel yeah. like that's a lot of, a lot of immigrant stories. Yeah. It's like you're, you're promised this... For, for for our parents, it was the Western world was like this next like crazy utopia, right? Yeah, yeah. But, it's opportunity. Yeah, yeah, like this, that, like, yo, life will be sick as long as you just get there. Yeah, just And work. then you realize it's all a pile of shit and you got to work for everything, mm-hmm. right? But obviously more opportunities, but the opportunities for immigrants in those days were like, here, have the shittiest work ever. For for way less than yeah. than what anybody else would get paid. Yeah, but they embraced it and they ended up staying. So they have their family there. So my my parents were both born in in Birmingham. Okay. Um and yeah, like from growing up, it was just one of those things where I was just always surrounded by my culture through music, through food, language. How many uh, siblings do you have? Just one brother. So my little bro, Sham. Sham Steel. Shout, yeah, out, shout to out to Sham, Sham Steel. We yeah, definitely yeah. got to get him on here. For sure, man. He was in the city recently. He shut down a few places. Like, yeah, yeah, yo. Yeah, shout, spin, man. Yeah, man. shout out to your brother, man. Yeah. Really talented artist. Yeah. So growing up, like music-wise, it would be... Like my dad was heavy into the drum and bass and the reggae scene. Like 
um, jungle is what they called it yeah. back then. So he was heavy in that scene. Like he was going to like raves all the time, yeah. like all days. And like family, like close family friend is is an MC called Bassman, which is a legend out there. Like if you ask anyone in the the UK music scene about this guy, like yeah. they know him. So listening to that growing up always kind of inspired me just to like mic presence, like how yeah. you can control a crowd of a thousand people just by spitting bars yeah. and like instructing them to do stuff. That was, it was inspiring to see that. And Jungle kind of has that vibe of um, old school like hip hop parties yeah. where it was yeah. a DJ and an MC. Yeah. Because if you go to those raves, that's the guy. Yeah, the beats are obviously putting people in a trance, but the the general is the man on the the MC yes. on the mic who's who's commanding certain things out of the crowd. And I remember hearing that even at an early age when I would travel to to uh, England, and I was like, "What is going on? It's what is energy this? in it? It's just straight energy. heavy energy." Yeah. And what like was that the first music that you were like exposed to? I would say it would be a mixture of reggae jungle and my mom is a big still to this day like an r&b head so yeah. it was like sunday morning it would be clean up music listening to old school rubber dub reggae and yeah. r&b yeah, like yeah. Sade and all them kind of vibes. okay and then when me and my dad were together just rolling around in the whip it was just me and the passenger listening to some deep and dark heavy jungle durham bass yeah. so it was it was sick like a little mashup of everything that's yeah. dope do you remember the first time you went to a rave yeah, I actually do. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I was 16 and there was this place called Air in Birmingham, Club Air. Massive place. It was kind of like an arena where they used to just do raves. And my dad was spitting there at the time. And then like Bassman was there too. So he so was so on the lineup. your dad was like, actually in the music scene. Yeah, well. yeah. So he, yeah. he was an MC. He goes by the name of Spanglers. So he used to spit out over like reggae and, and jungle. So he brought me there and it was just, I was just amazed by how many people there were. And these yeah. people were like off their face, man. Like they yeah, were just yeah. on certain else. And I'm <laughs> just a 16 year old. I'm, I'm drinking Red Bull to try and keep up. Yeah. Can't drink alcohol. So I'm just drinking Red Bull and water. Yeah. Like, yo, I'm gassed. I'm here. You know? <laughs> and I get there and it's this DJ. This DJ was absolutely greasy. His name was Andy C. Okay. Three turntables he was using to spin. And he was just controlling the crowd, like every little movement, every little jump, every little mix. The crowd was just going nuts. And yeah. I was just on stage just watching the whole entire crowd do their thing. And just seeing that, I was like, yo, this music thing is sick. Like, just you realize it. the power yeah, within the it. Yeah, the power of it. Because I've always been like a headphone listener, like listening at home. I had like a little boombox in my room and I'd always make mixtapes and all that kind of stuff. But... The live element of music is is something else, man. Yeah. Like, especially when you see so many people just all just dancing, skanking to the same tune. Yeah. Um, so that was my first rave and left there at like six in the morning. Like, <laughs> bushy eyed, everything. And then my dad's like, yo, so what did you think? I was like, that was sick. He's like, okay, when you have age, you can come to the next one. <laughs> yeah, that's wild, yeah, man. Yeah. So 16, man, started off. That's crazy. And like, when does hip hop enter your life, or did, like yeah. obviously there's grime and certain other aspects, but like, what are your first memories of like hip hop? Hip hop, oh man! Was so. it was it even American hip hop, or was it UK hip hop? 
So my dad was a big, big, big hip hop fan back in the day. And he still is now, but he, he kind of likes to revisit a lot of albums. So my mom used to always joke, like, yo, your dad thought it was out of Cool J. Like, he, <laughs> okay. he, used to, he used to wear the fisherman hat and the gold rings and the gold Easy. teeth and all that stuff. So Al Al used to play a lot. Like Radio was one of the albums I remember hearing a lot when I was growing up. And um, yeah, it was like he listened to a lot of the, the black conscious rappers like X-Clan. Um, used to listen to a lot of Ice T as well back in the day, like nice. the kind of like those ghetto yeah, yeah. hood raps, but they had the storytelling to it. And then I guess modern rap, it would more so be like Mob Deep. The Infamous was an album we played a lot, and for me that was groundbreaking when I heard the samples and just like yeah. the storytelling. And um, so from there, it just spiraled onto me just digging music and just trying to find. I would always be sitting there because he was collecting a lot of vinyl at the time too, so. I'm hoping I can send you a picture so you can put this to the podcast. Oh, of like, yeah. just he's got like a floor map of all of the vinyls that he had. Wow. Nice. And my brother's. We'll just, make it the cover yeah, for it this cover, episode. Man. <laughs> it's just like digging through the vinyls and just seeing, okay, such and such worked on this one, such and such produced this. Like reading album credits and seeing where was it made, where are these guys from, and why did they sound different from these guys? Like who's from the East Coast, who's from the West Coast? And it was just for me, it was like school. I used to just listen to music as a way to learn more about different cultures, different parts of the world. Well, yeah, you're somebody that you look up to and your father yeah. has this type of intrigue in music, yeah. right? So obviously it's going to rub off on yeah. you, but you were blessed that you have all these records yeah. around and this and, and so many different influences in your life. And I uh, also want to touch down on grime because Ooh. grime is very important, I feel, yeah. in your journey mm -hmm. and in UK's journey in general for yeah. their type of music. So what are your like earliest memories of grime music? Because it's changed to yeah. the, grime has come to the forefront finally in the UK. Yeah. But it, it, it faced a tough battle at one point. It was because so the basic thing in, in you'll notice in England there's like a few different genres just pop up every so often. Every few years there's a new genre. So grime was kind of like the back end of the scene called garage, UK garage music. So my mom, because it was very similar to R&B, you had like the, the lush vocals, the big vocals on there. Um, used to go out to these garage events and it would be like people rocking Dolce and Gabbana, sunglasses on, drinking champagne. It was like very like lavish kind of music. Yeah. And it was danceable. And then a lot of the MCs from the jungle scene or from the drum and bass scene, would, or the youngest from like the same people that would listen to that music were spitting over these UK garage beats. And then the UK garage scene was like, yo, you guys are a bit aggressive for this kind of music. Like, yeah. we don't want MCs, we want singers on the music. And that's how it kind of like spiraled into grime. Mm. So the grime godfather, of course, you have to give acknowledgement to Wiley every single time. Because yeah. yeah, Wiley is like, anyone that knows grime has to pay respects to Wiley. Whether love him or hate him, he's like the pioneer of this, of this thing. And for me, listening to Graham in Birmingham, it was more so off radio stations. So we have these things called pirate radio stations. I was just going to ask you about pirate radio. Yeah. yeah. So my uncle as well, he's also involved in the, in the music scene too. He would DJ. So a lot of his friends would be on these DJ, on these radio stations. And um, they'll be just have a different block for R&B, one for Garage, one for Graham. So I remember it was like late nights, you would have to listen to the Garage and the Graham yeah. section. And it was just local MCs just spitting bars, like in a studio, cramped in a studio, yeah. vinyl decks. And they would have a phone right by the, um, the microphone. And they were like, yo, if you like these bars, call up. 
leave a message, <laughs> leave one ring, and like all them kind of things. And it was just yeah. sick, like listening to it. You, you get your little SIM card that had one pound credit on there and just phone and make sure that they didn't answer up so you can get the song reloaded. Yeah, stuff yeah. like that. And it was just... Yo, these kids don't know, <laughs> they don't know man. about reloading <laughs> the tune. So stuff like that, just like, it was like a community of people. Mm. And then you would go to school the next day and then you try and find the guy that had the tapes like, yo, did you listen to MC Brasco on Hot yeah. 92 yesterday? And they're like, yeah, 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 I got the tape still. Can you give me? Oh, and so it was like a big like tape trading yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. like a tape trading scene. So we used to just walk around with Walkmans on and then just like spit the bars back and forth in the, in yeah. the playground. And it was just something that stuck. And one of the things was you always wanted to be sick in your ends. Like if you were sick in your ends in your area, then then you'll be sick in Birmingham. And the whole goal was just to be the sickest MC. Yeah. Like, who had the most memorable bars? Who was able to, like, catch the most amount of reloads? Who was able to, like, give the most energy? Who could do the best sound effects? Yeah. And then the whole grime scene was just everyone was so much peer pressure. Everyone was trying to just compete to be the best in the scene. Mm. And being from Birmingham as well, it was, it's kind of like an a inferiority complex where we're the second biggest city like and they always compare us to London. Like we're better than London. Like it was always that. So the MCs there were always trying to prove that yo, we're just as sick as these London guys. Like yeah. we just have a it's different that Brampton accent. mentality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Brampton, so, like, Brampton's the same thing. Everyone's like Toronto, Toronto, but yeah. we've got the talent here as well. I feel like we always got to try to that same mentality. We got to try to prove yourself whenever you step to the mic to do yeah. your thing. And that's what it was. It was just from just a whole bunch of different crews from different ends, just like competing to be the best from the ends and the best in Birmingham. Can you talk a little bit about the move from the UK, from Birmingham, and how you ended up in Canada? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my aunt was actually the first one to move to Canada. So she yeah. moved probably five, six years before we did. Okay. What, what year is this? this is, so I moved to Canada in 2007. I think, yeah, 2000, no, 2008. So 2007, 2008, mm. I moved and we used to always come and visit in the summer. So we used to visit my aunt in Brampton um, and also had some family in Mississauga and Etobicoke. So we used to always visit. I was mostly in the burbs, like going downtown was like a big day. So you know, yeah, yeah. it was summer. the greater Toronto area yeah. mainly. Yeah. So most of my family were out there. And then my mom's always had this idea of moving to North America mm. and she wanted to move to America originally, but it's like, no, nah, Canada's more accessible. So it was always something she spoke about, always something she brought up. And then it was one day I just saw the house for sale. And then she's like, yo, we're actually going. Yeah. So the house went up for sale. We moved back with my grandparents. And then it was just like a few months while we were packing everything up, getting all the immigration stuff ready. We went to Canada and it was one of those things It didn't really set in until I was here. Like the whole transition getting all the paperwork, getting the pictures. It didn't really hit in. I'm like, yeah, it's just another vacation. Yeah, you're, you're excited, but you yeah. don't realize what you're leaving behind. Yeah, yeah. So when I got here, it was, it was, I was really homesick when I first got here because my brother came here before I did. I was still in college at the time. So I finished off my, okay. my um, A-levels. And so you're like 18, 19 at yeah, this time? Yeah, I was 17, 17, 18, yeah, yeah. 17, 18. So I was still finishing off college, my first year of college, and then finished that off, came here in the summer. So my brother was already out here just like having 
crazy time. All of his friends from school, he already started school, uh. like just roaming around the block, just doing hood rat stuff with his friends. <laughs> and then, and I was mostly just chilling with my cousin. And when my cousin was busy, it was just me just trying to get familiar with my surroundings, like just walking around the ends, getting familiar with my bearings. Uh. And it was when I started school, that's when like everything just set in. I'm like, yo, I'm in Canada. Like, yeah. I'm actually here now. Seen the big. And was Heart Lake your first school? Heart Lake was the first school I went to in Canada, yeah. And like, w- w- like, w- where, like, where did you move? Like, which block in Brampton right away? Van Kirk block. Yeah. <laughs> Van Kirk. Shout Van Kirk out section. Van Kirk. Van Kirk section, yeah. So that was my set. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so you were banging hard back then for Van Kirk. Yeah, man. Just like seeing all those yellow buses roll off. I was like, yo, I'm actually in Canada now. Like, yeah. it just set in. So Was it culture shock? Because you were... You know, like when Magic, when you moved, you were a lot younger. Yeah. But for you, Strick, you were in well into your teens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you've had your whole life there. Was there like, um, was it a difficult transition and was it a culture shock when you were actually here? Yeah, it wasn't too much of a culture shock because I've, I've visited here a few times. But the transition yeah. was, at first it was tough because like I'm really close to my cousins. And like they were basically like my siblings. So not being around them 24-7, not being able to just like, knock on my aunt's door that lives 20 minutes away and just yeah. like, yo, I'm hungry. And then, you know, just <laughs> crash there for the evening. Yeah. That was a different kind of transition for me like, rather than just having the family around. It was just having one aunt that lived close by. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, it took a while to get used to that. Like just the, the space of everything, man. Like Brampton's yeah. massive. Like the blocks were huge. Whereas in Birmingham, everything was... 15, 20 minutes from where I was, like in terms of my grandparents, mm-hmm. my aunts, my uncles, cousins, all that stuff. So it did take a while to get used to. And then when I went to school, it became a lot easier to to just get more familiar with the lifestyle and yeah. getting accustomed to just the Canadian, Canadian way of living. Like being in high school was different for me because I was already in college at the time. I was already speaking to my professors and lecturers by a first name basis yeah. and then having to go back to school and call Mr. and Miss and yeah. all that kind of stuff <laughs> and have bows tell you when to go. So it was, it took a while to get used to, for sure. Um, what are your memories of Heart Lake High School parties? Oh, man. So, <laughs> Heart Lake house parties. Like, I tell my friends about these parties. They were, like, I think... Every year probably says this, but I think we had the sickest year of parties, man. Like, yeah. we, we went in. Like, whenever parents went away for the weekend, like, they went away to, like, cottage country or they just went on date night. Yo, who's got a free yard? <laughs> and then it was just one of those things where you just see every single person from your year. You're great there. The, for, for the people that don't know, in Brampton, <laughs> there's not much of a nightlife, no. let's say, right? And especially when you were underage like we were, if you didn't have a fake ID, there wasn't really many places you could go. So the options were like what? Tim Hortons parking lot. Exactly, right? Or literally what you said is anytime anybody's parents, usually the white kids, anytime mm-hmm. their parents were gone, they would throw they were the only ones that were really brave enough to throw house parties. Yeah. And you could never do that. No, man. Like I that. would do it sometimes, but like not as much as like, you know, all the homies. And them shits were always wild because it was like everybody was so hungry to just do anything yeah. because there wasn't much to do that yo word would get around and then by then you would you would it would be people from even different high schools yeah. or we'd go to like a mayfield party out in the fucking boonies yeah. out there 
and but it was dope and it was like you said it was all different cultures and no it wasn't like no click thing it wasn't no jock there wasn't really much like jocks versus nerds thing at at heart lake it was mainly just yo if you're cool you're cool yeah if you're a good person and then then there wasn't no like real bullying or anything like that like yeah your typical high school fights but it wasn't like anybody were getting picked on but i just remember those my high school years were some of the dopest years of my life and it was because of that, you had to improvise and just create good nights for yourself, yeah, right? Yeah, and I think just being able to see people outside of the school environment was was a good experience as well, like socializing with them outside of school. We had, we had a few legendary freestyle le- sessions. And, and I was about to say that, you know, like, <laughs> I think that that's when we started off on this music thing, like just being in those basements with the pink foam sticking out the wall, yeah. just freestyling because the auxiliary cord broke or something like that and they just needed entertainment. I remember because I had been recording on like shitty computer computer mics and like sending diss tracks and all stuff like that, right? <laughs> you dissing for him. Yo, like all the mandem, <laughs> like at school, you know, and then the next day we'd talk about it, but it was never like showing people to like show off my skill. I didn't think I was good, right? And then comes high school parties and then like somebody would spit and usually it'd be somebody that wasn't that good, right? And then I'll be like, yo, man, like in the back of my head, I'll be like, yo, I can spit better than this guy. Like, just do it. Just do it. Right. So then high school parties were the first times with a little bit of liquid courage. I would start doing it. And the reaction off of things like that were like the first time I ever had the idea of I could be a rapper and people actually like what I'm saying other than like my close friends. And just, like, having the reaction of you, like, you know, saying something funny about somebody and shit like that. And, yeah. like, those were probably the reason why I ever had the audacity to even record, you know? Like, I think that's how it all started off for us, to be honest. Like, if I trace back, like, the Brampton music lineage, it was probably from a house party where we were just spitting bars in the basement over instrumentals or, like, someone beatboxing. And then... Like afterwards, like, yo, this guy can spit or this guy can, he's got bars. Like, and then eventually we just ended up just connecting through that house party network. Did you guys ever rhyme and decipher together at a party? A few yeah, times. Yeah, yeah few man. Times, like, yeah. I remember, I remember there was one legendary one out in, uh, out in Wasega. Wasega oh, Cottages, man. man. <laughs> I remember. So there was like this, like, rundown place that fucking, there was, like our whole pretty much school, like a few grades were down there in Wasega just partying, just right? Wilding. Just wilding. Wilding. And I remember that fucking me and him were in this like so it was a bunch of cabins, like maybe like eight to ten cabins in this one little fenced off area. And we were in one of the cabins and we had started a cipher, just me and you. And I don't I think somebody was beatboxing. Yeah. I, I I couldn't tell you who it is. But I remember me and you were just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Like, I was spitting random writings, then going freestyling off the top of the head, then just... But it was just, like, mainly just us just fucking having fun, right? Yeah. And I remember by the end of it, like, I hadn't, like, looked around because I was so into it. By the end of it, our whole cabin was just packed with people. Like, to the point where, like, people were standing in the doorway, like, creeping in, looking in, and, like... I'm like shit like that where like you know it was gratifying in in those ages because it was like it's like I never I never you you were just doing something naturally and then to see people be like oh my god g- gathering around it, it was dope it was fun man and we were doing it with like 
no other motive than just to be dope and to have fun. To have fun doing it. something we love. Like yeah. we, we had such a such a respect for the art mm-hmm. that we didn't consider ourselves rappers, but like you know, we still did it for fun in a in in a in an innocent way at yeah. that point. But like like we talked touched down on a little bit earlier, it eventually we do have the idea of music. So me and you started making a lot of music in Brampton basements at the same time where I run into the likes of Noise, I run into the likes of Humble the Poet and all these people. You were in this bubble of young Punjabi kids within Brampton growing up and and not only doing hip-hop but all sorts of creative shit. What were your thoughts as a non-Punjabi kid kind of seeing all these things that were bubbling at that time? It, to be honest, it, it didn't feel any different than from me spitting in Birmingham or spitting back home. Because, like, the scene out there, you'll notice that all of these Grime MCs, if you look at their team, you'll see that it's pretty diverse. You'll have a few Punjabi guys on there. You'll have a few. You have a few up now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, <laughs> it didn't that. feel any different from that. But, for you know, it's one of those ones when whenever artists are into something or if when something like a movement or a subculture is going on. Like you don't know it's happening until other people start telling you about it. Mm. And I think there was a moment when, who was that? There was one guy, one promoter must have came from England. Oh, yeah, yeah. Shout, out to, uh, shout out to Harwinder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he came from England and he was like, I guess out there, because we had like a little social media presence at the time. We were on YouTube mm. and we were utilizing like Facebook pages at the time. So we were just getting like people from all over the place just liking the page. And then... He came and he was surprised and he was like, yo, why are you guys putting up your own posters? Why are you guys doing yeah. like your own like stage prep? I'm like, yo, we're still like doing this thing by ourselves. It's still homegrown because mm-hmm. from the outside, it must have looked like we were doing crazy stuff like shooting in Bollywood studios and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. But it was all homegrown. Like we were all yeah. doing stuff like we had just like a little creative hub. Like we linked up with Dusty and Dusty was the, the produ- producer slash camera guy slash just art director mm-hmm. with Harpre and then it was just like a little group of, of people that just all really enjoyed creating things and yeah it's just like based off the love of the art everyone yeah. just wanted to do it yeah we just wanted to do it like from being in the basement just spitting bars and it was one of those ones you had to bring your a-game too because like yeah. there were so many people that were heavily involved in the scene that were fans of the scene mm. like you wanted to make sure that you were sick like you wanted yeah. to make sure you had bars so it was good peer pressure to be around mm-hmm. and I didn't realize that I was in it until like other people started noticing when I'll go back to Birmingham. I was like, yo, you know noise, you know magic, you know humble. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, man, I let them are homies, man. Yeah, we were yeah. just like <laughs> chilling in the basement the other day. So yeah, that's when it started setting in. Yeah. That's dope. Um so I want to talk a little bit about your your first project that mm-hmm. you put out, the the Black Lights project. Yeah. Uh can you talk a little bit about that? What was that like? Cause like have you recorded songs, EPs, projects before, or was that like your very first body of work? That was the first body of work that I would say was like done at like a semi-professional level. Like it wasn't professionally yeah. done in the studio, but it was yeah. done in a way where we had a vision, we had a concept, and we executed it. Whereas before I was just spitting on, like I was even using microphones from like little headphones to record back in the day yeah. and using the front of the speaker as a mic, mic guard and recording Acid Pro, like all those yeah, kind yeah. of things. So this was the first one where I was actually learning the technique of becoming MC because there's one thing being able to spit and and freestyle at house party and just like have the sickest bars but 
being able to put that on a record where people can listen to it in headphones and actually mm-hmm. enjoy it was a different process. So just little things such as being able to spit into the microphone properly, like yeah. having good stage presence. I mean, having good mic presence when you're on there. Like a lot of times I would... I would be so comfortable on the mic, it didn't sound like I was given the energy. So I had to learn, okay, how do you make yourself sound more energetic? How do you make yourself sound like this? So that was a process. And the whole idea of it was Black Lights was just kind of like a little story and biography of what I've been doing and and how I've been feeling at the time. And when I Mm -hmm. listen back to it now, it was like, yo, that's how I was feeling at the time as a kid. I guess I was happy in some parts. I was like partying. And then there's some songs where I'm just reflecting on like my parents and like my upbringing and things like that. So mm-hmm. I guess it's just like a, a time capsule for me. It's always been just reflecting what's going on at the time. So we just uh, we recently had uh, Scotty <laughs> on the on the show, and yeah. you were an alumni of the Breakfast Club boop, as well. Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> Shout out for the people who do not know, Breakfast Club is a track that featured. Uh, myself, Noise, Spooks at the time, and Strictly Steel with the, one of the greatest intros to a hip-hop song ever. Yeah, I got my funk flex on there. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and that was kind of a random thing, right? It was another Brampton basement. We recorded that day and filmed, I think, that day as well. Yeah, it was day. sick. And, was sick. like, you know, and, like, that shit blew up on YouTube. And yeah. that's when we were like, we were so like, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. And we're getting these crazy views. Crazy. H- how did it feel like for you, like seeing shit like that or like that whole experience in general? Like seeing it happen when they say, you know, when they have people in the studio that, that just like have good energy. Like we had all good energy when we were there that day. And we used to do stuff like that all the time. Like people used to come by and just drop bars. But this was a time where we were like, yo, let's video it. Let's let's just just do everything from start to finish and just just put it out there and see what happens. So we had the idea. And the crazy thing was, I think this was the day of, or the day before I was going back to England, because I went back to England for a year. Yeah. So I I wasn't able to stay the whole entire time because I had to go back home packing and dip. Yeah. And I was just saying, I was like, yo, guys, I can stay for the first like hour or so, and then like I got to dip. And then when I go back home, go on YouTube, and I see you guys throughout the video, I'm like, you guys are sick. <laughs> but it was just, it was dope to see. And then my mom was super proud of it. It was like, yo, you know that you're getting mad views on YouTube. And I like, uh, swear it down, and she's swear, uh, sharing it on Facebook and all these kind of things. Okay, mama still, <laughs> yo, holding it down. Yeah, but it was sick. Like, to be honest, it was just all organic. It was just all of us just in the studio. And we were just having a good time. Like we just wanted to make a tune where all of us was just able to showcase how sick we were. And I was just in the intro, I'm like, yo, let me just get my hype on. Let me just get my funk flex on and just like <laughs> introduce everyone with the most amount of gas ever. And it was sick. It was lit because yo, a strictly steel feature is fire. Yeah, like it was always <laughs> fire. Yo, that's the one thing I can yeah. th- I can say for and sure. And that's the thing, like collaboration. As I was saying, it, it helps a lot with this this music thing and creative thing because, like, peer, good peer pressure just makes you better, right? Like you're able to just learn from other people too. So the stuff that I learned from you in regards mm-hmm. to like mic mic presence, the stuff that I learned from noise in terms of how to carry bars over and how to like build a theme. So if you're not learning from your circle, it's kind of like you need to bring in that energy. You need to bring in yeah. that 
that kind of experience. So uh, we were we were, at that time we were all learning together, yeah, right? Yeah. And then, like you said, it was that friendly competition mm-hmm. of yo seeing this guy spit these bars, and then yeah. at that time you're not even we were in we were still in a very young age, so it yeah. wasn't like yo. Oh, this guy's trying to outshine me. No, like, no, no it no. wasn't even like that. It was like, yo, that's dope. Yeah. I want to be just as dope as that. So yeah. let me do this shit as well. Yeah. Right. And that's kind of what we lose as we grow older. Mm-hmm. Right. We forget that, yo, creatively, we are greater with Together, more yeah. in, like in people around. Right. And it, not necessarily for all things. Right. Yeah. But it, you can find yourself in very healthy, creative relationships with people. And the older we get, we tend to lose sight in that. Yeah. But back then, that was happening often. Anybody who was down to do anything, whether it was record or say, say tuck shit on the mic or yeah. whatever you wanted to do, do come it. through and yeah. you'll spread that good energy with us. Yeah. And it was, it was one of those ones I would, journey, I would take the journey from Etobicoke all the way to Brampton. Just Yo, to like I remember them ride, rides you know? to Etobicoke to either drop you <laughs> off or pick you up, yeah, man. man. And it was sick because we were all there for like the same purpose of just having fun. And as you said, it's, it's that, that balance between independence and interdependence. Like having your own ideas and your own style, and, but also relying on other people to help bring it out of you. you know? And it helps a lot. I think one thing I learned about you like we knew we could we knew you could rhyme but i think through the black lights project and other things you've done since then is that yo you have a crazy gift for melody man yeah man yeah you know, i think that? that's like my mom with her like r&b influence yeah. like having that but also reggae is is super melodic man like yeah. if you listen to reggae deep reggae it's the melodies are what make the songs memorable even bob marley if you yeah. listen to bob marley mm. you'll notice that of course, his lyrics are sick. The instrumentation is sick, but the melodies are just what hypnotize you. Yeah. That natural mystic vibe, you know? I feel like you live your creativity. Yeah. Whereas to some people like the idea of being a rapper and they figure it out after. Mm-hmm. You fell into it and it happened so naturally. You now another one of your many talents is photography. Yeah, yeah. You you fell into it, but it seems natural. Yeah. It doesn't seem like I'm just a photographer. I'm just a rapper. Like, yeah, I'm a dabble in photography right now because yeah. that's what I feel like doing, and that's how I wanna. That's how I want to uh, put my creativity, create creative energy into the world. Sure, right. Man. And whenever somebody needs me on a track, let me bring my positive vibes to that as yeah. well. So if that in that sense is what I'm saying is just. You're a creative being, yeah, and you just find ways to fucking bring it out of yourself. Has that always been natural and easy for you, is, or is that something at, that came the older you got that you had the confidence now to do it? it? It's still something like in terms of confidence, it's still something that all artists and creators I think battle with throughout their life. Yeah, but like I failed art at school. Like I, I can't draw. I can't do it. Like creatively, I was always a creative mindset. Yeah, it wasn't like physically sitting down and like yo, I'm gonna do this, this, this. Like, I would spit bars, but I would also, like, write in my, in my notebook as a way of, like, a diary of what's going on at the time. I would take photos to reflect what I'm seeing. I would take videos. Like, those sessions we would have in the basement, remember the camera was always, always there. Like, on, it was all, yeah. So it's something that I've always embodied. It's always just now I'm just bringing it to another level, like, just practicing the craft and surrounding myself with people that I am I'm inspired by to try and get better. So... Yeah, creativity, as you said, like, that's the best way to describe it. Just, like, just embodying it as a lifestyle, just trying to express what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and also, like, collaborating with others to try and get 
an insight into what they're doing and helping them express it too. And that's uh, that's a very important piece of it is perfecting your craft. Mm-hmm. And I and you know sitting at this table, this is three individuals who have worked their asses off in perfecting all different forms of of their crafts, right? And that's what people tend to forget sometimes and what kids may not see. There is a lot of sharpening to yourself that needs to be so done much, so much. before you ever get to a point where you can make this either your full-time gig or get it to a point where it's bigger than just yourself. Yeah. Like how right. many times did we spend in the basement just going over and over and over bars just to make sure that it sounded good, Yeah, you know, and it's, it's one of those things, it's a process. And, and part of that was just training it's, it's, and listening to music as well, like spinning bars over and over again. It was, it was just training for us. All right, so I want to dive into that a bit, Magic. You talked a bit about um, photography. Uh, Strict, you know, you are very talented with the camera as well, not just with the mic. Thank you. Uh, so <laughs> w- let's get into that a little bit. Like how, when did you first get into photography? It was probably when... I just came to Canada because a lot of my friends would always be asking me like, yo, what's Canada like? Like they just thought it was igloos, like this. <laughs> so I remember I got a camera for Christmas and it, it was just something that came free with a printer that I got um, like when I was printing off essays and stuff for school. So the camera was just like a little extra thing. It was like this small little Canon point and shoot. But I brought it everywhere with me, like every house party, every studio session, every road trip. I remember you having that camera yeah, around. Like everywhere. I used to just bring it and just take pictures of like just the nightlife, the the studio sessions. Like it was just fun for me to just capture the moment and then look back on it and also just to send it out to show people like this is what Canada's like. Like it's different, you know? So yeah. it was always just a way to document things. And I started taking it a little bit more seriously when I bought my first film camera. So I bought a film camera like back in the day, I was searching on Kijiji and it was this old film camera, this lady out in Pickering or somewhere like that. And I was like, yo, I'm not able to make it out to Pickering. Like, I'm working all day this week, but I really want this camera. Can you send it to me? No, no. I was like, is there another way that you can, um, like, send it to me or something? He's like, you know what? No problem. Send me the money. I'll send you the, the camera, and, like, you'll get it soon. And at the time, I'm like, it's a bit shit. <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to risk it. It's like $30. So I got it. Came pristine condition. And that's when I learned, like, the fundamental, like, the mechanics of of using a camera. So it's kind of like using a MPC mm-hmm. rather than using like a studio software. Yeah. Like you get into actually going back tactile. to the basics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you're figuring out all the basic stuff. So I, I was using that. And then film at the time was pretty affordable. So I was able to buy rolls of film in England for like a pound from the pound shop. Yeah. Get them developed for like three pounds. And then just like document what was going on in Birmingham, just document the street style, the street scenes, architecture, just me around my house. My next door neighbor had chickens. So I was like taking pictures of them, just just like everything just to practice with it. And then my mom got me, um, she got me like a Canon Rebel for Christmas one year. And I was just documenting just our family, taking videos. I shot a music video with it like okay. in my ends. So it was just something I've always dabbled in in terms of just documenting what's going on. Yeah. And then recently, I would say in the probably past two years, like there's been a collective of photographers that have been around that have just been leveling up. Yo, shout, out, shout them out, man. Yeah, man. Like So the creator class, they did this this free workshop where you could go and 
get knowledge on how to work cameras, how to get into the industry, what to do in terms of composure and composition. And it all just was like a, a learning curve for everyone, like no, no matter what level you were at. So we were able to bond together over that. So Dusty was the one that introduced me to it, Dusty Loop. Shout out to him. Like me and him, like every weekend we would just link up, meet downtown early in the morning and just like go around, network with people and just shoot shoot portraits. Shout out to Dusty Loops. Yeah. Dusty, he's taking too many pictures. That's why he's not here co-hosting you know, Dusty, with us. <laughs> I just want to shout out to him because he's one of those guys, again, as you say, like he's a creative, he embodies that creative oh, lifestyle. Yeah, for sure. He's just a creative guy. Him and his brother are like, two tag team aliens man like, they can just do everything i don't know where we found them yeah like they do everything from producing to they could spit bars too <laughs> like Yo, if they wanted to like and dusty just, dusty has some hooks out there <laughs> that he won't let us put out man he's got something you can yeah, see oh trust me jeez but yeah it was one of those things where like we just we just got together through photography and we've always had that that connection through music like we've always loved music but it was always the deeper things that we looked into so like cover art we'd be fans of looking into the cover art and looking at to the track listings and things like that and then when you look at that then you start thinking about composition and then you start thinking about yo why does that album art look so greasy why does that ma magazine cover look so sick and from there we've always just been trying to just replicate what we grew up on and trying to document like this crazy energy that's flowing through Toronto right now. So yeah. we've been fortunate to be surrounded by so many creative people um, and also just people from all different walks of life, from educators to people working retail, but also having a side hustle as a musician and just being able to document that is just, it's sick because you're able to just put this into a time capsule again and just, Everyone's looking at Toronto right now as well. So I feel like Toronto has a crazy amount of photographers, crazy amount of crea uh, creators, but everyone has their own style. Like me and Dusty will go out and shoot the same exact subject, but I have a different outlook on it, which is something that a lot of people can't do. You know what? If from the outside looking in, it feels like, you know, that early part of our music, mm -hmm. how that yeah. ex the exciting times of people willing to grow together, it sounds like you've found another version of that yeah. within photography. And that sounds amazing to yeah. me, man. And yeah. it's like studying it as well. For me, it's new. Like music, it was like, it's still an ongoing process. I'm still learning. I'm still like diving deep into like jazz archives now, trying to find out like where did these samples come from? Like who are the up and coming jazz musicians now? But for photography, it was you really do have to put those 10,000 hours in, man, because you can't just get an iPhone and take a picture and think that you're going to be Instagram famous. It's, it works for some people, yeah. but, like, a lot of the sick photographers that I know, they're not really prevalent on the internet. They're not really, like, Instagram famous. They're, they're sick at their trade. They know what they do, and they just deliver content to big magazines or to having their own stage, I mean, their own um, exhibits and things like that. So it's just... Trying to figure out like what kind of style you want again is another learning process I'm I'm in right now too. It's I feel like it's just like a rapper, right? Like yeah, you can everybody has their gangster phase, their mm -hmm. this phase, their ballin phase, but it's like eventually you have to figure out where you fit in the system, right? Sure. So as a photographer, yeah, we all go on we can all go on Instagram and yeah, there are some really, really good photographers on Instagram, but then there's also the typical let me shoot the skyline with like cool colors yeah. and this and that. And 
they might be just be doing it for the IG likes. But yeah. then there's people who are, like you said, who are here forever learning about the photography, not just photography in general and the photography industry. Yeah, for sure. And it's like something that stood out to me was Tremaine, like from the Stay Out Lit crew. Shout out Tremaine. Tremaine. Yeah. Like he, he told me, he's like, yo, every picture should have a story to it. Yeah. Like every picture should be able to, to give you an insight into what was going on in that frame. And that's why I try and embody when I take pictures. And a lot of people don't know that it's the same as what we were saying with music. Like when you see these Instagram posts or you see someone's exhibit or someone's magazine shoot, you don't get to see all the shots that they didn't take. Nah. You didn't, or the, the ones that they did take, but they didn't look as good. Yeah. And it's kind of like if you listen to reference tracks in music and you hear like, oh, that didn't sound that good. Or that yeah. take didn't sound that crazy. <laughs> and then when you look at these, par- uh, these books by like Gordon Parks and you see all of the 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 show reels and all of the, the actual images that he took and then the ones that he actually cropped yeah like, yeah oh that's sick like he's able to have a vision and, and pick one particular thing and it's it's just again that whole creative process of trying to figure a lane and trying to figure out your style i just find it fascinating what like where do you like what part of photography excites you like where do you see yourself in the photography world like going forward I'll give you an example. So recently I went to, I went back to England and then I took a layover in Lisbon. Okay. So I was like, I'm just going to... Shout stay. out all the Portuguese yeah, all the dons yes, out in yes, Lisbon. Zup, zup, zup. So <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm just, I have no itinerary. I'm just going to walk around the city with my camera and just, just see what I can, can find. Yeah. And it was the best experience ever because I was just able to walk around. I met people. I was able to take portraits of them, get a little insight through broken Portuguese and English of of what life was like in Lisbon. Yeah. Walking through like these neighborhoods, there's like videos that I took of old Portuguese landis singing like fado music in the yeah. middle of these alleyways. And it was just a different experience rather than me just going there to to sip wine and, and go to a museum. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. of course, that's still part of the culture, but I feel as if with street photography, it's just seeing a city or seeing a town, seeing a country from a different perspective. And you're able to just navigate using your camera as a tool. So. The, the one thing that I like about street photography and even travel photography is that you're really capturing a vibe that is... Obviously, there's a feeling within you that is being brought out by you taking a picture of something. Yeah. It can be as simple as somebody's character of the way you just look at them and you're like, that person's interesting. Yeah. Or it could be a certain block on a street that could be a rundown street, but it's something speaks to you. Yeah. And that's kind of what I like about street photography is like, some people might look at it and be like, what the fuck? It's just a street. Yeah. But then there's others that might look at it and be like, yo, that street has some fucking character. Yeah. You know, you know? Yeah. and that I feel like the really good street photographers are the ones that can bring that. They know how to frame it. Right. And they know how, how to make you feel You're that there. setting. Yeah. And that's dope. And I, I see that in some of your shots. Like like you said, you have your shots from back in England and, and Portugal. And even, uh, I, I believe you went to Japan. Yeah, this summer I was in Japan. So that was a crazy trip because I went there with like my partner and, and her family. And I was able to see the big city life. But yeah. also like those small towns where the family came from. And you get to just see Real how, Japanese living. Yeah, and that was... It was something special because you're able to just go and interact with these people, but also just 
document at that exact time what was going on. So you yeah. get to see these these temples. It was going around to find different grave sites for her family members and things like that. And being able to document that, it's going to live forever, right? It's an image. I can Very frame important. it and it, can, and it can stay forever. Same with like a song. It's going to live on forever. So being able to do that is just something special. And it, it's something that I want to just get better and better at doing. And we live in a, in, in a world right now where everybody literally has a camera in their pocket, sure. right? So it's so accessible. Why not? Yeah. You know, yeah. we, to document as much of our life, why not? Because yeah. you know what? I would love if my grandparents lived in this generation and I could literally go see how their life was. And Some crazy see, parties like, they went maybe, to. Like, yeah, we have VHS of when we were younger of, like, you know, certain things. But, like, imagine if you could just pull it up on a smartphone and see, like, you know, like, so much knowledge is to be gained from that and admiration and a lot of things. Influence, inspiration, all these things, right? And yeah. I feel like photography is very important in a lot of journeys that we are on. And a lot of the times when I've been doing this research about, like, even, for example, when I'm... I'm researching the, the hip hop scene or the jazz scene or like whatever music scene. A lot of the times you, we talk about the five elements of hip hop a lot, right? When we're teaching it to the youth and things like that. But one of the ones that goes miss uh, the undocumented a lot of the times is the photographer and the videographer. Like if you didn't have those mm. pictures Most of those graffiti walls, if you yeah. didn't have the picture of those street street um, subway subways and all of the streets and all of the people with their gold and the people break dancing yo like, album art in the booklets come on, man. on, like, it's on, so on important. vinyl covers on source magazine like people don't understand that was so iconic to us like how many times point. did you embody like the image of a rapid just because you saw the picture of them in like your pre-internet era it's not like you would get a JPEG and you could just look it up. No, like you had to go see it on the stands yeah. and then you could see a certain legendary cover and be like, whoa, yeah. like, yo, this is dope. So, no, you're definitely true in that. They're, the videographers and the photographers are just as important as all the other pillars within hip hop. For sure, man. Just as important as the DJ, the MC, like all of them, because that those are those... The, the footage, the photos that we see, it just brings us back to that time, yeah. right? You're able to see what Brooklyn was like in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, to, to see where it is now, you know? Yeah. You're able even, to see the evolution. Even, like, somebody, like, because hip-hop is such a young art form, right? There's the likes of, like, Johnny Nunez, mm -hmm. who is a very prolific hip-hop photographer. Not only a hip-hop photographer, just a photographer in general, but... He has been working in the hip hop industry kind of as it's been growing. And like now, like whenever he pulls out like an archive pick, you're like, holy shit. shit. Yeah. Like, yo, this is so dope. And that's important. It's important for us as hip hop heads to see those pictures where it's like, you know, Jay-Z in a back room or like certain Rockefeller members just chilling backstage normally and like. Like you said, it lives on forever and it does tell the story of hip hop. Yeah. Um, just kind of getting back into your little timeline of your story. So like originally when you came, you said uh, like your, your family came with you here, right? Yeah. I know that your moms went back to England. Your brother went back to England as well. Like how, how was that for you? Like what, like, you know, like was there ever an option for you to go back or was there like so was there so much of your life being built here that you felt like you had to stay or what what was the case for you at the time i think he was just 
as you said before, when we were just in that little creative circle, we were just so much was happening, and I was able to experience like my teenage life out here. Like most of my teenage life, I've experienced in Canada, yeah. Brampton, Toronto, Etobicoke, and I was just able to just maneuver in a city and get familiar with something brand new, which was exciting for me. So, and you you were doing your post secondary at yeah, this point, yeah, I was doing right? my post secondary. So. Once my mom and brother went back, like my whole goal was to just finish off school and then figure out things and what was going to happen. First year of university, like it was tough, man, because I was I was living with my aunt at the time. And like I was always, I was trying to socialize and be like in the university and just do a whole bunch of stuff. But I was commuting from a tobacco course so that took like two hours yeah. for the subway you lucky bastard <laughs> and then, um, yeah it was just it was one of those things where i was i was back and forth and then like me and my aunt it was she was thinking that i was using the place as like a hotel because i was only there for a little bit yeah, so yeah. like we got into beef and like i was going i went back home to england for i went back initially just to visit the fam like just to visit my mom chill with my bro for a bit and i ended up staying there for like nine months ten months I know. I remember we thought you're never coming back. Yeah, it was just, and it was just one of those ones like I was working out there and like it was just so nice to be back home. But I reached a point where it's like, like my mom didn't sacrifice moving to Canada for me just to give up on it. So I went out there like guns loaded, just like full steam ahead, just, like, just, just ready to just go and shut down. So like when I was in my first year of school, it was hard, man, because I was just. I was working like two, three jobs, like hustling, trying to do my thing while studying. And like the studying compared to university to, to high school is way different, fam. Oh, Especially yeah. when I, I majored in English as well. So I was reading a book every week for the course that I was taking, wow. courses I was taking. And I was taking like four or five courses. So that's like a, a new book every other week. And you're having to just do things differently. You're having to navigate a whole different system. And I didn't know anyone at the time that went through post-secondary in Canada. So I was learning all this by myself. I was buying books brand new first year. Why was I doing that? <laughs> Why was I doing that? And then after Are that, you dumb, yeah. bro? <laughs> so stuff like that, little, little rookie mistakes. And then after I went back to England, I was working out there and I was still making music. Like we did that Believe Me music mixtape. Yeah, I was doing yeah, it like via satellite. That was sick. Um, and yeah, I was still involved in the music scene out there. And that's when like my brother really started to pick up music as well. So like he was kind of under my wing just like seeing what we were doing and it kind of inspired him. And now he's, He's killing shit. So. He's repping it, man. Like, I don't regret going back at all, but coming back, I really came back focused on I'm out here with a purpose, like to do something and, and accomplish something. So my goal was to finish school. And I've always been involved in education in some way, in some aspects. So yeah. my, my aunt, she's in education. My mom was also in education as well. So it kind of like naturally fell in place that I became involved in it too. So my goal was to become a teacher because I had some sick teachers in school. Yeah. Also some really bad teachers in school, some shitty teachers. Mr. So like, Silver. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Man's just sending shots <laughs> on that podcast. I didn't even say anything. But yeah, it was one of those ones like, I was like no student should have a bad teacher. Like they yeah. should be able to have someone that they can relate to, someone that is like in their best, has their best interests. You know? No, you're, no, you're right. You know, yeah. we all knew educators who were fucking, didn't give a fuck yeah. about us. Yeah. 
And then we know no ones that really took an interest in us, yeah. right? And that makes a huge difference for a kid who may not even want to be in that fucking class. For sure. Sitting man. there doing that because that's not the way they learn. And I had a sick teacher from music back in England as well that like really inspired me to get into the profession because she was like this small little four foot little white lady. Yeah. But when I came in from another school, I was already, I was already labeled as like the problem kid because I came in there after like getting kicked out of this school for being in a fight, this young black kid from the inner city in this new school, and she took me under her wing, man. She just made me feel super comfortable. She's like, yo, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're going to write this letter. You're going to apply for this. You're going to... And having someone like that inspired me. Like, one person really can make the difference. Yeah. So from there on, when I came back to Canada, I just finished off my studies, got into teacher's college. And now I'm, I'm in the school board, like the, the local school board in, in Toronto, and I'm just doing my thing out here. It's, it's still hard to get full-time. Yeah. So I've been doing a lot of like temporary contracts, long-term contracts, like daily supply teaching. But for me, it's also really cool to see the city through the eyes of what these kids see because you get to see how much inequality there is in the city, man, like, and seeing like the diversity of the city too. I'm going from schools out in Rexdale to schools in Scarborough to schools downtown to schools out in Forest Hill. And you get to see the different variety of of people there. Like the yeah, these are different economic areas, yeah. right? And you get to see the difference of maybe even the school boards within this area For and sure. the way they're funded differently, but also the mentality of uh, mentality of kids born into different economic yeah. standards, it's right? so true. And... Being involved in it, it's still a way for me to create in, in terms of like maintaining that creative lifestyle. Like I'm able to think of dope lessons and think of sick activities for the kids to do whilst not sacrificing like my creative sense no. of being, right? So for example, like if I'm teaching English, like a few of my, my friends are teachers as well. So we're all hip hop heads. So we all think of like different ways to incorporate hip hop in the curriculum. So there'll be one class where we're dissecting J Electronica lyrics. There's okay. another class where we're doing like looking at the themes in in Dam and trying to think about motives and symbols. So, like, there really is so much you can do in in terms of of showing kids how they can use what they listen to every single day, utilizing the tools and bringing it into something that they can relate to. The fact is, when you use somebody's language, they're gonna understand you, and For that's sure, the thing. Man. I remember sitting in some classes and not knowing what the fuck is going yeah. on like you got to speak with them not at them you yeah know what I mean? so you definitely keep you on my toes too man like yeah. i'm learning some big boy tunes coming out of the city through these kids like, yeah. so it's the new artists like they put me on a lot of stuff too so it keeps me on my toes man uh, what age do you mainly do so i'm mostly with intermediate senior that's grade 7 to 12 so anything okay. in between so um, well, these are impressionable years, so yeah. that those are the years where you could really inspire some For kids. For sure, and especially at like elementary level, that's the stage where they're thinking, is school for me or am I just going to do my own thing kind of yeah. thing? So it's definitely those years where you make the most impact. And especially with, with high school, they already have, some, some of the kids have their past lined up from them, from their parents, and it's just that peer pressure and that that adult pressure on them as well to get things done, to get A's, to get... So they're not focused on learning, they're just focused on getting marks, just yeah. getting through the system. So trying to bring back the the excitement of learning something new and, and, and trying to grasp a new concept and 
just bringing back that that excitement like you know when you you find out a sample from a song you're like yo i found a new sample from a tune <laughs> you hear it in yeah. the store while you're just and walking you can do the same thing with literature man like you can read read a book and like yo this guy got sampled by shakespeare <laughs> like all this kind of stuff so i so, enjoy it so you kind of navigated through you know different social economic uh neighborhood statuses like that um as as a black man you know going through these different neighborhoods some of them were you know, there are more diverse neighborhoods, some of them where, you know, you would be someone that's an oddity there. Um, I guess, how do you kind of, how do you reconcile that or how do you, does that change your approach to the classroom? It does because it makes you, for me, you always have to have culturally relevant material. Like you mm -hmm. always have to be making students comfortable with what they know and, and making sure that they're, they're, their backgrounds are important in the classroom. So it's not to discredit them and say, no, we're only going to be learning about such and such because they discovered Canada. It's like, no, <laughs> you, don't, you don't need, there's nothing in the curriculum that says you have to do that. So being able to bring in their experience helps as well. But going there as a, as a black male, especially in elementary school, there's not many of us in, in the system. Mm -hmm. Like we're, there's not many black male, there's not many males in the, in the elementary system yeah. overall. So being a black male, there's, it's one of two things. It's like there's a lot of pressure on you because like you're one of many, one of few. Mm -hmm. You have to be impressionable in a positive sense. Yeah. And it's also the opposite where it's like, do these kids already have a notion of what you're going to be like based off stereotypes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a crazy balance that you have to work with when you're mm -hmm. in there because some kids will be intimidated from just looking at you, you yeah. know, until they actually get to experience what you're like in front of them and in their classroom but yeah it's been it's it's something that i'm still battling with now like in terms of just maintaining that professionalism but also recognizing all the injustice and mm -hmm. all the fuckery that's going on in the system <laughs> like it's, it's mad like i've been working with a lot with indigenous youth as well over the past few years and seeing how even though we're in a country that emphasizes diversity and and all these things seeing how a group of people have been subjected to so much. Oh, they've and been continuously. They've been are. shot on so bad, it's, and it's unbelievable. Yeah, and and just seeing how even now it's still something that they have to fight, and it's exhaust. Like you know how exhausting it is when you have to defend your race all the time. Like yeah. especially being people of color, you have to defend certain things that you do. You nah. have to defend certain practices. You become fairly or unfairly. You have to become the spokesperson yeah. for your entire group. Yeah, and yeah. it's exhausting. So like the kids that are in front of me, they're exhausted as well because it's their whole entire life. They're already just slapped with a label, yeah. you know? And it's not always a positive one. So, yeah, it's just navigating through the system. It's, don't get me wrong, the Ontario system and the teachers that I know are doing amazing things in the classroom. Like, it's it's not like all of us are just giving up on and just, oh, it's, it's a shit show. Like, they're doing amazing things and we're having a lot of impacts on the kids, but it's still something that it's evolving. Like education should never be static. Mm -hmm. Like we're always should be learning. Like even teachers, we should be learning and, and going through different processes of trying to connect with them in a different way. Like I went to a professional development class the other day about coding mm -hmm. and they're trying to teach kids to make apps and become uh, designers, like technical designers through their thinking and try and resolve problems with their thinking. And we only spend like a few minutes on the computers. The rest of the time you're developing the, the actual process and concepts of how to 
to come up with solutions for problems that people have. So, mm. yeah, man, like the, it's amazing what these kids are doing. Like if you go into these classrooms and see what the kids are saying and producing and the conversation that you can have at kindergarten level, like nah. it's inspiring. No, yeah, yeah, like I feel like uh, even with what you said is like this next generation of teachers, like we knew how it was like to be in school. I feel like that gap of, Teachers that actually give give a shit is like it's it like there's more teachers now that are there for the right reasons, and yeah. I feel like that's that's a really dope thing. But just like going back to your thing, like yeah, I don't now thinking about it, there, there was not many male people of color teaching. Like shout out to uh, to Mr. Kelman, yeah, yeah, yeah. back in Heart Lake, y'all, the gym teacher, fucking the rugby coach. I mean, uh, the wrestling coach. Heart Lake I actually used to see him bouncing at clubs, Jeez. and I used to be in there with like uh, like fake IDs, and I'm pretty sure he knew, but he still let us up in that bitch. Yeah, so shout out to Mr. Kelman, man. <laughs> the plug, eh? The plug. <laughs> but I mean, just going back to what you said about like the the evolution of education. This is kind of a, a topical thing right now, a bit of a hot button issue. I don't know if you if you can get into it, but with um, with Rob Ford or sorry Doug Ford um, in power now, and the whole repeal of the the sex ed curriculum going back to the 1998, or that's what he's trying to instate. Um, do, do you want to get into that a bit? Do you have I can dabble on it a bit. So yeah. there's like a few a few things that people are getting wrong with this whole argument, like. Okay. It's, it's not a sex ed curriculum. It's a health and physical education curriculum. So mm. the, the, the document covers subjects from being healthy, playing sports, and having good communication skills when playing sports to making sure that you brush your teeth and washing and showering every day, things yeah. like that. The sex component of it is a, a section that teaches kids how to talk about it and how to... How to practice safely, basically. So mm. talk about consent, talk about different things such as gender identity and, and, and sex. And it just introduces that vocabulary to the students, not in a way to give them your opinion, but mm. to be able to talk about it in a way where they're comfortable. Yeah. And they can understand and recognize, they can recognize what is going on around in their, in their world. So... What's going on with the curriculum now? Repealing it. To be honest, I don't think it's going to stop a lot of teachers. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of the teachers that I know, pretty much activists in terms of making sure that the kids know and are prepared for the world. Because if you look at any school board's mantra, their mission statement is to make responsible, socially conscious teach, uh, students, right? And you can't do that if you're not preparing them for a world that exists around them and they don't have the vocabulary and knowledge we, to talk about. We it. ultimately live in a world now where this information is so accessible anyways, right? Yeah. If you are going to shelter your kid to the point where, yeah, you, okay, I get it. You want to teach your kid these things. But there are certain family households that aren't even mentioning any of these That's things. The thing, like going yeah. back to like my household, a lot of immigrant households, if we didn't learn it in school, we weren't learning it anywhere. Yeah. Anywhere, right? Like, I never had the birds and the bees talk with my dad. Like, no. luckily, I had, like, like you know, significantly older brothers. And, like, maybe my dad told them to tell me, but that's where my talk came from, right? But the thing is, 
the health education is where I actually learn the facts behind things, the actual yeah. knowledgeable things that yeah. you don't, you won't learn. Yeah. Right. So it's like in that sense, yeah, to to give this knowledge and blah blah blah. Obviously, if a kid brings that home and they have a total misconception of what they've been taught, you are still there to put your little spin on what they've been taught. It doesn't mean like their minds are going to go wild and they're just going to go start banging kids in fucking grade eight. <laughs> like, you know, like that's what parents are thinking. But that's yeah. such an unfair way to view this even. Mm. The more knowledge anybody has, the better I feel. And like. I feel and as if like this whole rollout, they didn't actually ask teachers what was going on in the classroom in yeah. terms of like mm -hmm. how these conversations are, are being shared and even with the parents because I feel like a lot of the people that are making these decisions don't have much experience in the actual classroom. So being able to talk about, you can talk about health in any subjects. It doesn't have to just be in physical education and in mm -hmm. gym class and health class. I can talk about in English, I can talk about any of the subjects that are mentioned in that curriculum document, the, la the, the one that got revised, and just bring it up as a, a discussion so students can make presentations or mm -hmm. reflect on it in journals and things like that. It doesn't stop teachers from doing anything. It's just in a different form, in a different way. And that's one advantage of being in elementary school. It's very fluid in terms of subjects don't have to be science and math and English all as separate lessons. They yeah. all connect to each other. So yeah. you'll see a lot of people connecting things through STEM. You'll see a lot of people connecting things through English and social stu studies and things like that. And it really does help because it gets the kids to think about things in a nonlinear way. Like yeah. nothing is really, it, everything mixes together. Like in terms of English and language and math and science, you all have to have some knowledge of one subject to know the other, right? So yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a touchy subject for some people, but... To be honest, I feel as if the teachers that are really passionate about education will continue to find ways to teach their students in a way where they're able to have those conversations and, mm -hmm. and take away from it what they need to know in order to become responsible citizens. Yeah. So like you said, just kind of speaking to kids in their own language. Exactly. Like speaking to them in a way that they know and, and also just giving them vocabulary. Like, like as, as an example, you're working in, uh, with a lot of people um, in relation to mental health now. Like, yeah. if we would have had this conversation five years ago about mental health, the vocabulary that would have been using, mm -hmm. I wouldn't know how to certain, describe certain things or to identify certain things, but right. due to the public education about it and due to more and more people being open to having these conversations, like, I feel comfortable telling my homeboy, yo, I don't feel good today, man. Nah. Like, mm -hmm. I'm going through something, you know? Whereas before it would have been taboo or it would have been something culturally we wouldn't have talked about. So, yeah. Not giving people the insight or the knowledge about what to talk about or giving them the, the vocabulary to say things, it, it holds people back. You know, we do a greater purpose by creating the narrative than to take it away, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know. We could talk about yeah, this. This yeah. could be a whole nother podcast. This is deep, man. This is deep. But you know what? Just to wrap up a few things, you know, we like to go over a few segments. So, you know, we it. have... You know, the British-born, the fucking Canadian-Jamaican up in the building. So Honorary Punjabi, too. Honorary yeah. Punjabi, too. Probably the tallest Punjabi we have <laughs> out here. But, yo, what is the best food in the world? Oh. This is going to be a hot take. Like, if you had to pick between Jamaican, British, and Canadian food. 
come on, fam. I know, like, yo. <laughs> come on, either come way, on. somebody's going to punch on. you after this podcast. Yo, come on. I think the answer for this one's easy, man. Jamaican the food. Jama- is, yo, is I was going to say, if you don't say Jamaican food, the you're crazy. The specific dish, I would say for people that if you haven't tried it, Akin Soulfish mm. with some festival and Bami. Bami is like ground cassava. Okay. It's a vibe still. Easy. <laughs> What, with red stripe on the side? Yeah, red stripe on the side. <laughs> One right, two to push to Ray Nephews and then you're Easy. good. <laughs> Yo, man, jerk chicken, I could eat that 24-7, yeah. seven days a week. Yo, man. It's, it's sick, man. Like, it, just having it around in the summertime, like, I've, I've had a few, few plates this summer still. Yeah, okay. I recently just went vegetarian, and the food I miss the most is probably jerk chicken. Jerk chicken. Yeah. Yeah. One of my homies, she actually, like, makes jerk mushrooms as an alternative. It's, it's not the same, but... Yeah. You get the, the seasoning. <laughs> yeah. Yo, you yeah. should actually. I, I just recently got a dope jerk seasoning, so yo, okay. you could you could probably no try it on veggies, man. Um, okay, chocolate bars. Because yo, bars. UK has some fire chocolate bars. Ah, uh, there's this one chocolate. Bar. Oh, booster bars. I'm not sure if you've had one of them. I've never had uh, that. I know lion 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 bar. bars. Yeah, lion bars are good. And then what? Boost, booster bars are a vibe. Flaky. Flakes flakes, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Even the Cadbury fingers. Cad- Yo, so Aye. Birmingham is also home to the Cadbury factory. Come so on, don't tell me that. We used to go to the Cadbury factory on school trips. They used <laughs> okay. to give us bare samples. Nah. Bare samples. So we used to go there, like get our sugar supply, come home, smirk the whole pack. Like we used to get a lot, man. Okay, so I know the answer to this next question, but I want to tell the story after you answer it. <laughs> Where is Carling beer better in UK or in Canada? UK. So yeah, this is UK, definite. Easy, so I easy. used to always tell strictly, I'm like, yo, every time I go to the UK, all I drink is like pints of Carling at the at my uncle's pub, right? And then whenever I'd come back to Canada, I'd taste it and it's like the shittiest beer ever right <laughs> and that and that goes down to i guess the way they make it over here because yeah. they don't import it from uk right they have their own little factories out here and i remember one time uh strick had just got back from england Fresh and my homie boat. like i think we were going to like peterborough or something oh, yeah we're going to oh. we're going to peterborough to party at somebody's university campus or some yeah. shit right so I remember right before we're about to hop in the car, Strick's like, yo, I got a four pack of <laughs> Carling from England for you. I was like, okay, my you dog. Were so gassed. I was, was so, so gassed. gassed. We're on the way there. I'm like, I, I didn't even want to drink it, right? But I think I cracked, we cracked one each. We, we cracked one. A one each, right? Because I'm like, yo, I got to cheers and drink this with my homie. He brought it back from the UK just for myself. I'm like, yo, this is amazing. We were drinking it on the way there. We ended up getting pulled over, right? Oh, this fucking asshole Yo. cop, right? <laughs> fucking ends up seeing that we have like open beers and whatever. He's like, "Yo, we can, I can give you tickets, this, that." This guy, like, even the unopened cans, he made us fucking dump them. So all the Carling cans this guy has brought me back, like, dumped them. But like, I still kept the can. You know, I was like, "No, nah, t- I can't let this go." Yeah, he was emotional after that. Yo, Until we got that. to the destination, and he's like, "You forgot about it." But yeah, that was yeah. a crazy road trip. Yeah, I, I just that randomly came into my just head. Listen right to now. drum and bass in the car. I think that's why we got pulled over because <laughs> yeah. we were going a bit too fast. All right. <laughs> so okay. So we we heard about your best Jamaican dish. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite traditional English dish? You can't be a Sunday roast, to be honest. Okay. Like a good Sunday roast is is everything, man. You'll have 
So you got the Yorkshire puddings, mm. the gravy, mm. fisto. <laughs> you got all the veggies on the side of that. Yeah. And you have maybe some turkey or some beef on the side. But yeah, it's it's a good meal, man. But what what about the good old English brekkie? English, you know what? I was never a big fan of English no. brekkie, fam. I was never like, I'll go back home now and have it as just like nostalgia. But I was yeah. never a big fan of really. Yeah, eh? I was never. You know, one thing I hate is English bacon. Oh. once you have Canadian bacon, yo, oh god. When you have like a, a bacon body though. Oh right? yeah. But yeah, the other one is like fish and chips as well. But you have to go to a good chippy, man. That, like you have that, to that, go see, to I've been one. to some shitty ones and I'm like, nah, this ain't it. But if you go to a really good one, it's like better than yeah. anything in There's the world. There's some sick ones in, in Wolverhampton, like where my, my mom is now. Like, there's some really good ones out there. And then in Birmingham, there's some legendary ones as well. So, shout them out. Yeah, there's, I think it's the, the Golden Fry. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I don't, I just, it's one of those ones you just know where it is. Yeah, you know what yeah. street, you don't know the yeah, name, you just yeah. go there. It's some rundown yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, you just go there and everyone knows what they want. But Also donor kebabs, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yo, street food, yeah. Like yo, after, shout out to all my Middle Eastern mans making donor kebabs yo, all the way it, from man. London to Newcastle. It, Them guys are killing it, man. Killing it. Three pounds. Like, I don't even show what the prices are now. It's probably a rip <laughs> No, nah, definitely. <laughs> Them mans are ripping mans off for sure. Donor kebab and chips. Sick. Um, I'll let Noise introduce our last segment that we like to end our shows off with. Yeah, so as always, we like to end our shows going around the panel and just have everybody name something or somebody that they're grateful for and just to, to honor the energy that inspires us and the things that kind of encourage us to do the things that we do. Um, so just anything in your life, any person in your life that you're grateful for having them around and having them inspire something within you yeah so being in brampton the place where it all started i definitely want to shout out my homie forever living boomerang aka manpree gill he's just like a part of me man he passed away last year but he's one of those energies that you have around you that was just it's it's indescribable mm -hmm. man. like you just it was just love man. yeah it was just love like yeah. every single person in my life knows of him and they just know him for the same reason for being the energetic mm. weird crazy guy so definitely i embody like his traits when i do stuff man just in terms of just living my life to the best mm. trying to do as much as i can and just you know, just making sure that everyone around me is good. So even yeah, uh, even when we were talking to Humble, Humble brought it up too. He's like, "Yo, we're so busy living life that when we have such gems as Boomerang around us in our everyday life, right? And it's crazy that somebody that you think is invincible and he had that character of just yeah. being old. He was bigger than this motherfucking world, this right? Just skydiving one day, then he would just Dude, like he, <laughs> like, in, in his short life, he took that shit by the balls. Yeah. And that's one thing that I can at least smile and say yeah. now, right? But, like he was saying, it's like we get so caught up in life sometimes that we forget about these gems that we have living around us. And, you know, Boomerang is somebody that meant a lot to all of us. Yeah, and, you sure. know, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of us would fucking shed tears if we had brought this up even earlier in this podcast. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you brought it up now because I haven't even felt like I got to grieve him properly or even to even have a proper conversations with the people that knew him. Mm -hmm. It was mainly just like people being like, oh, Manpreet from high school, like, yo, he was the nicest guy. All I ever saw him do was smile and have a good time. And it's like, yeah, that is the person who he is. But it's like, he's also the guy that 
called you after months. Just to, just see, to see what's yeah. up, and you also know. And his it's ability like, to just to bring like an array of people around, like he was just sick at curating a vibe, man. Just yeah. like bringing a whole bunch of people together, like yo, we're just gonna chill, like things like that. And you, you do take it for granted, man. Especially as you grow up and you get older, and you don't see people as much. Mm-hmm. But he would always make time, and that's something that like I try and embody as well. I'm just always trying to make time, whether it's a phone call, whether you just drop in by the house on a random one. This guy would just drop by Toronto at one o'clock in the morning, like yo. Downstairs, yeah. so yeah, shout out to Man Free Man. If ever living on, yo, always. boomerang forever, forever, man. man. Noise, what are you grateful for? Yeah, um, I'm gonna shout out a uh, Birmingham home, homegrown. Uh, shout out to the man Fate from uh, Crown in Maine. Jeez, yo, Jeez. that's my guy, man. I was in Vancouver, I was trying to yeah. link up with him, but. It just didn't happen, but yo, shout out to him. I mean, he can go back and forth a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. in, I was in Vancouver last year for a show. And I didn't have anywhere to stay. And he's like, yo, just stay at my crib. I'd never met him before. Had very limited online interaction with him. And, you know, this guy's a beautiful soul, man. Him and his wife, they, they took me in, showed me around the city, you know, kept me well fed. Like, just really honest, beautiful, down-to-earth people. Um, and he is, at, when you were asking me about, like, foundations, well, I was talking a lot about the London scene, but in Grime... yeah. He, you know, he goes deep. He's he's one of the pioneers of like just bringing it to the Midlands, man. Like based yeah. out of Wolverhampton, he he's one of those guys. Him, him and Despa, like they did a lot for the city. Yeah. So he's he's a really deep brother, man. Not not even just his his history in the music, mm-hmm. but he's a scholar, man. He's a he's a preserver and collector of sick artifacts, sick books, sick weapons. So he's he's a really dope brother with a with a really deep and extensive knowledge in a lot of different things. So the, the greatest thing about that trip when I just stayed with him for a couple of days was just having those conversations over breakfast and just playing chess with him. That's and sick. he would just like kick game at me about the music scene in the UK in like 2005. He's got records that he did with Skepta before Skepta was anybody. For sure, man. He was and then the he, would, like, he would drop gems on me about like sick weaponry from back in the day. He would show me stuff from his, his catalog and from his collection. So you know, I learned so much from that trip and I haven't been able to connect with him at the same degree, I saw him briefly when we went back last year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, shout out to Fatih, man. That's a, that's a really dope brother right there. Yo, shout out to the whole Crown and Main collective. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of individuals who, creative individuals who are working out there. And definitely Fatih is spearheading that. And They're doing some big things. Yo, like, man, it's, yeah. it's good to see because I feel like BC is a place that has been getting slept on creatively within yeah. Canada. Yeah. And there's so many fucking talented people over there. So shout out to all our fucking they're like family to us so shout out to them can't wait to have you guys on the podcast and yeah keep doing what you guys are doing over there so i guess that brings it to me let me end it off so um it is uh actually tomorrow well this is gonna be way later whenever this podcast is released but tomorrow is actually my birthday it is my 30th birthday and it has brought a lot of uh reflecting and soul searching and to be honest Growing up with you, Strick, honestly, like, and that's like, we didn't live in no ghetto or anything like that, but I never envisioned life growing old. I never, I was living such a reckless lifestyle. I never, 
I wasn't in no gang or anything. Like I was about to get shot or anything, but I never saw like a full life as my potential. I was just like, you know what? Um, let me just live this year. Moment, let me yeah. see what's going on now. Like I never saw like I'm a, I'm gonna get married. I'm gonna have kids of my own, and I'm gonna grow to be old. That was never. It was just something that wasn't in my vision. Yeah. Right. So it's like. The older I get and the more, you know, creativity comes out of me, the more life comes out of me. Now that I'm older, the, the amount of game I get to kick to youngins and un, kind of reevaluate my purpose on this earth. I'm grateful for the vision that I have now compared to what I used to have. And it was so narrow sighted at one point and I didn't give a shit about who I was disappointing or what my contributions was to this planet while I was here. It was just about what the fuck am I doing today? What am I doing tomorrow? And fuck everything else, right? And that's a bad mentality to have because we have to look forward to something and set goals and, and, and kind of level up each year, right? And that is something that I take in pride now as in every year I want to become, a, first of all, a greater human being. I want to become a, a greater son to my parents, a greater uncle to my nieces and nephew, a greater brother a greater husband, a greater, you know, um, creative even. Yeah. And my whole thing that I've realized is we are constantly growing. We are constantly learning. This time is very fragile. I've lost some really good family members. I've lost some really good friends along the way. And the older I get, uh, the more I realize that it's important to soak it all in but it's also important to realize what the next steps in life are. And my clarity within my own mind of the person I am and what my peace is in this world is growing greater. And in that sense, I'm excited for the future. I'm not excited to be 30 and getting older, but in that sense, I'm excited for what the future is and the way I can shape this world in my time here. So. Without being too deep. <laughs> That's no, that what the good, fuck man. I'm on, motherfucker. You know can I ask you guys both a question? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, like, you, you remember you asking me about, like, what was it like at the time when we were just at our creative, the, the creative time where we were just making stuff for the fun of it. At that time and, and now, do you, like, the younger generation that look like you and can relate to your experiences reach out to you and, and try and get advice or try and get some game of how this thing works? Uh, all the time, yeah. yeah. Yeah? People will hit me up. Like people that are like at a very, very base level, just asking me concepts about fundamentals. Like, how do you rhyme? How do you put a verse together? So you'll, I'll get those type of messages, but then I'll get other people on that are, you know, a bit more advanced in what they're trying to do with their crafts that are asking for a bit more insight. You know, how do you perform on a stage? How do you, you know, how do you train for that? So I get a lot, a lot of people, a lot of different people from different stages of their creative journeys. And... Yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to respond to an email and share whatever knowledge I've gained. That's dope. And so it's, it's been really cool. It kind of trips me out sometimes. Yeah. When <laughs> I, like, I'll meet someone who's in their 20s and they'll be like, yo, I grew up listening to you. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's the fucked up thing. Like even creatives who, have, who are now kind of etching their lanes right beside us, they were like, yo, I remember being young and you, what, the second you guys came out, it was like that's what made, made me feel like I could do it. And it's like now to think about it like we don't think like that we've had like eight to ten years doing yeah, this yeah, shit yeah, right coming it's like yo i'm the pioneer this so these shit. kids yeah. were like elementary school high school and now they're going into university to now even you know working jobs and shit like that and it's like 
to even people older than us that have even been like, yo, I'm from like I was at a wedding the other day and there's like, yo, I'm from the Bay Area. I've been I was listening to you guys, Zoo Babies, all this shit. And this was a grown ass man telling me this. Right. And he was just like, yo, way to represent our people and stuff like that. Right. So it's like that sense is cool, even on the creative sense, but then even on as fans, like the the impact you have on kids like i'm sure like me and noise have numerous stories where it's like you've helped me through depression or uh, or these the certain things that were going on in my life that i heard that you were going through and it helped me understand that i'm not just out here by myself so i felt like once that came into our life that's when we kind of realized our greater purpose within this shit right before it was just like let's make the dopest music possible but then it's like, yo, we have a really big responsibility within our own community to showcase our knowledge of what it took for us to figure it out. How is? Do you feel like a lot of pressure from that, though? At times, but now the older I got, at least for me, like now I'm like, I'm so confident and I'm going to lead a kid in the right way because... People have led us down the wrong way. People have just blown smoke up our ass and being like, you guys are dope. But they never actually spit game to us that was knowledgeable info. It was always just like, oh, you're popping on YouTube right now. So let me just talk to you because you're popping. Mm -hmm. But it was never no like, yo, little kid, let me tell you. Yo, these guys are going to tell do this. They're going to do that. Like, yo, you get your money right. Get your get your fucking credit for everything you do and this, that. Like, nobody was doing that for us. Yeah. Like, we had to study hip-hop to get that. Yeah. There was no... There was, like, yeah, there was rappers that were older than us from our community, but, like, nobody in, like, arm's reach. Nobody that I could, like, email was, was just, like, one night when we started reaching out to Humble. Like, that was when Facebook started popping off, the uh, YouTube pages, started popping yeah. off, right? And... Now we live in the internet age. So to any young kid listening, just reach out to these creatives, man. Don't do it on the, on the, like, I hate this thing where they're just like, yo, man, put me on, yo, like, post my track, yo. Like, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. I'll give you all sorts of advice on how to get better and build yourself and how to, how to, how to get put on yourself. But I'm not just going to post your track because you tell me to, you know, and I feel like it, it, we definitely need to share our knowledge in that sense. That's dope, man. Yo, I think I think that's pretty much it for the podcast, yeah, no? That's a wrap for 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 this episode at least. Yeah, yo, yeah. strictly honestly, I am I'm proud to to be able to say that I've been part of your journey, of your journey. The the creative you are as a musician that's forever growing that we still see that we still call upon whenever <laughs> we need a feature. I'm glad that you're still making music. I'm glad that you found happiness within another media art form, which is photography, and you're killing it within that and finding new inspiration. Also, doing your education, going into a field that you love that you're doing for all the right reasons. I want to say that I'm definitely proud of you, brother. I know we don't get to say these things often to each other, but I'm proud of the man you are. And I definitely want to thank you for coming here and sharing your story because these are important things. Like you said, documenting things on photography and, yeah. and stuff like that. We owe this to the next generation do, to, to spread our knowledge. And if they get that little 30 seconds out of this podcast that helps them in whatever they want to do, then, yo, we've served our purpose. Yeah. Uh, noise, you got anything to wrap up with? I feel like Strick. I feel like you're you're a joyful creative. 
Yeah. <laughs> like there's always a lot of joy with you what do you do. With joy, yeah. yeah. And you, you create from a very joyful and an honest place. Um, so yeah, that's because sometimes I struggle with my shit so much and I'm just like fighting myself to come <laughs> up with these bars. But then I, list, I look at you do it sometimes. And I'm like, yo, it's so effortless and it's so, it's so fluid. Thank and you, I, like, man. I try to, I try to draw inspiration from that and try to put, uh, incorporate that within my own approach. Thank you. Um, man. so yeah, man, I'm, you're constantly learning. I'm constantly learning from we you. Are, constantly man. learning from magic. We all are. And just trying to Definitely. draw inspiration from wherever, uh, wherever I can. And yo, I just want to say, thank you for coming on the show. And yo, we need more educators like you in the field, man. Thank you, man. Yeah, yeah. man. Like if we really do, especially males. We need some positive role models yeah. in the community. Like I've been doing, just with my own workshops that I've been doing in schools. Um, a lot of teachers that I talk to, they're like, yo. You know, middle school, elementary school, they don't see a male teacher till they get to high school. Yeah. No. And yeah. by then they already have like negative conceptions of them, right? So, yeah. But yeah, man, thank you guys for having me. Like, this is sick. I am your host, B Magic. I got my boy Noise. And last but not least, Strictly Steel. Boop, boop. Okay.